Welcome back everyone. My guest today is Bridget Petrillo. She is a CRNA who has lived the recovery process and she's willing to share her story today. I don't ask people like Bridget on here so they can relive their stories in vain. I ask them so that you can hear their stories in hopes that it will humanize substance use disorders in healthcare professionals. I'm gonna tell you in all honesty, when I first got involved with monitoring for diversion, for me, it was all about the hunt and patient safety, which is very important. But I gave little thought to the healthcare professional. After all, they were guilty of theft, working impaired, and putting patients' lives in danger. So why would I have empathy for them? They should have known better. And if they knew that they were addicted, they should have known better to ask for help. Now I'm still concerned about patient safety, but I am much more empathetic toward the healthcare professional after speaking with people, learning more about the disease. And that is why I invite people like Bridget to the podcast. She has a story to tell, and I hope that it will open your eyes further to the disease. So welcome, Bridget. Please share your story with us. Hi, Terry. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for uh, giving me this opportunity. I'm really um, flattered after listening to many of your podcasts. Um, so yeah, what you said about should have known better, that was definitely something that was going through my mind uh, my first day of recovery was uh, just, if you can imagine a, a suitcase full of self-hatred that I was carrying around because of thoughts like that. Um, I had no idea that becoming a drug addict was an occupational hazard of the job of working in anesthesia. And I really thought that um, people who were drug addicts were uh, uh, morally inept, that, that it was a choice. Um, and, um, you know, I despised them. And so, of course, I had to then despise myself for what I assumed was falling down this hole or tripping or, or whatever it was. Um, like many other anesthesia providers, I sustained an injury. I was uh, skiing, probably under the influence of alcohol, quite honestly, mm -hmm. and uh, tore my ACL, needed surgery. Uh, back in the 90s, they were giving out oxys like they were candy. And, um, you know, even if they hadn't, it was just very quickly after that um, that I became addicted um, to the feeling. Sure, like I've listened to other podcasts and other people describe, I mean, the medicine took the pain away, but it more made me feel normal. Um, it took away a lot of my anxiety and uh, my, um, initially it gave me more energy. I got really, uh, you know, like revitalized from it. And um, I felt, you know, more even to have that those medicines. And, you know, I likely went back to work uh, too early. I, um, uh, you know, I was superwoman and um, I thought, you know, my job can't live without me. And, you know, there's always a shortage of healthcare providers anywhere at any time. Everybody says, oh, there's such a shortage right now. I have never worked in medicine that there hasn't been a shortage of staff, right? Always a shortage. Um, so, uh, you know, I had this perfect storm, I like to call it. I had a uh, family history of alcoholism and mental illness. Um, you know, I had a grandfather who died of alcoholism. Um, 
I had a job that put me at risk and um, then I had this exposure, right? Uh, so that's, that's my perfect storm. And then in addition to the job, which is your um, expertise, is that the medical management by the pharmacy and the hospital was very loose as far as the waste uh, record keeping. It was incredibly loose. And so it made it that much easier for me to uh, take the leftover waste instead of putting it in the garbage. It was a clear liquid that was witnessed. Okay, here you go. Uh, and then I could take that because I was in so much pain. I was in emotional pain and physical pain. I told myself it was physical pain, but in many years of retrospect, I know that it was emotional pain that I was in. And this was 24 years ago. So my date of sobriety is 127.99. Congratulations on that. That's great. Now, did was it the hospital that finally said something to you or was it someone else that confronted you that ended up your journey of recovery? It was uh, my coworkers. It was my very best friend was a perfusionist that I worked with. Um, it was an anesthesia tech that was in recovery from alcoholism. It was uh, two other nurse anesthetists. Um, and they, you know, I was unique. I don't know whether I was unique, but I was blessed. Let's just say I was blessed. My friends and family knew each other. Um, my friends would come for Christmas. They knew my family. They had their phone numbers. Um, my, I have a sister who's um, a little bit older than me, but we would pal around with my friends. And so they all, they all knew each other. And so they were able to collaborate and, um, uh, hire an interventional um, doctor, and then they had an intervention. So at 5 a.m. on 127.99, I had eight people show up at my house and say, uh, we have a bed for you. Um, we're going to take you to treatment because they realized that the hospital and the administration wasn't doing anything to help me. They knew, they absolutely knew. They didn't know what to do. And my friends didn't know what to do, but they figured it out. And so... Um, they, they got me help. They, they packed a bag for me. They watched me take a shower. They, just like in the movies, I didn't want to go. One of the moments I like to discuss when I tell my story at AA meetings is I'm sitting there in Connecticut in, uh, it's January, it's cold. It's probably snow on the ground. It's probably 30 degrees and I'm in my pajamas and there's a sliding glass door behind me and my family is in front of me and they're reading the letters just like they do on TV and telling me, you know, the facts. And I'm thinking to myself, I could run out this back door and I could run down the Boston Post Road and nobody will ever know. And I wanted to run so badly. And yet, you know, because my brain had been hijacked, I, I just, I don't know what made me stay there, but that's what I, I thought that to solve my problem, I could run out the sliding glass door in my bare feet in my pajamas and walk down the road and be done with them. And so instead I, got in the car with them and drove to a treatment facility and I stayed there for two weeks. Then I did intensive outpatient for eight weeks and then okay. counseling and NA and AA. Okay. So a couple of things that you talked about. So it was friends and family. They saw a change in you, I'm guessing. And those that were yes. at the bedside with you were watching that change yes. in addition to social interactions. And so that's important, right? That's a lot yes. of what we need to look for. 
um, the fact that the pharmacy wasn't looking. That's the data piece of it. So maybe they would have said, whoa, Bridget is you know, wasting quite a bit of, of stuff, but they weren't looking. So we really depend on the peers. And this is, I mean, if peers knew what to look for and took it seriously, you almost wouldn't need any of this other stuff because right. they're the ones watching. Now you talked about your brain being hijacked and you know you were thinking if I could just get out the door, this could be over. Is there more about that that you can tell us? Like, what is it like? I'm guessing that there were other times before the intervention where it was just not reality, but you felt that it was. Yeah. And, um, it is it is the worst feeling in the world. I, I tell people I have lived through hell because that knowledge of knowing that I was a criminal and doing something that um, I had no control over, but I wanted to control, but I could, I thought that I could control it by stopping. And then once I realized I couldn't control it and I couldn't stop, I thought about suicide all the time, all the time, probably 24 seven. I thought about suicide mm -hmm. and, um, being in the anesthesia business, we have access to incredible amounts of strong drugs that I could do that. So, you know, I was really, really holding on to that was going to be my answer um you know if if i didn't get help and i i'm so blessed you know uh with the fact that my friends and family saw that there was something wrong and they had the knowledge uh to to do something that, that right. there was something wrong. i had that change in behavior i stopped calling i didn't answer the phone i turned all my lights out i would make plans with people and never show up I mean, I did all the classic things that we learn about. Um, now we learn about it. Back then, we didn't, you know, necessarily learn about all that. But those are—that's one of the things that I teach. I now teach a lot of the anesthesia students and um, the residents, and I teach them, you know, find a tribe, find somebody you can be accountable to, and tell them, if I'm starting to act funny, you need to do something. Like just like if you had a mole on your face that looked cancerous. Mm -hmm. that you can't see, but a, mm -hmm. somebody says, gee, that mole looks suspicious. Maybe you should get mm -hmm. that checked out. Kind yeah. Of yeah. No, very true. Very true. Um, <clears throat> I think when you told me your story originally, this group of family and friends, they, they did the one day at a time thing, right? Like just go for yes. one day. And if you don't want to stay, you can leave, which yes, you know, wasn't true necessarily, <laughs> unless you ran out right. the back door in your slippers. <laughs> right. Excuse me. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. But right. But when I showed up at the treatment center, even though it's funny back then, they never knew what, you know, they didn't know what fentanyl was when I sat mm -hmm. down and they said, what's your drug of choice? And I said, fentanyl. And they go, what's that? They don't say that anymore, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But I thought, what the heck? They're not going to be able to help me. And my friend said, you know, please be open. They can help you. And they, they said they could help me and they did. And I don't know why I believe them. I don't know why that's where I, say it was the grace of God that kept mm -hmm. me there, that allowed me to listen to these people and say, yeah, it's no big deal. We're going to help you. You're going to be fine. You're going to get this treatment. You're going to get out of here. And you may even give anesthesia again, because I really thought my life was over. Right. Right. Okay. So after 24 years, another congratulations, by the way, would you say that your recovery is complete? No, because it's always ongoing. It'll be complete when I die, I think. But, uh, you know, I, uh, it is constantly ongoing. I'm constantly learning. Um, 
about the disease of addiction and recovery. And uh, that's the beauty of it really, is that it's never complete. Okay, and you still attend meetings and you're involved in those mm -hmm. types of things? Okay. Yes, I enjoy, I enjoy going to meetings. I have worked all of the 12 steps. I sponsor people, I have a sponsor. I'm involved in the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Uh, their peer support um, network. Um, we have a group called Anesthetists in Recovery. We call ourselves AIR. Um, I'm also involved in IDAA, which is the International Doctors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, they have meetings, um, they have conferences, and um, I am part of those groups. And so that keeps me learning and helping other people. And the thing about helping other people I can't tell my sponsee to, uh, you know, don't drink, go to meetings, do your meditation, do your prayer, make amends, work all the steps. I can't tell them to do that if I'm not doing it myself. Sure. So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So you're back in the OR. There yes. are those who feel very strongly that people should not go back into the OR specifically because it is so dangerous and you have a lot of autom autonomy You've got all those meds right there in front of you. Obviously, you are a success story, but there are some that say, don't even take the chance because the uh, risk of relapse and potentially death is so high. So what are your thoughts on that? Yes, and not only that, it's the patient safety thing, like you said. So, um, you know, I believe that there, I believe people are entitled to their opinion. Um, and based on their experience. And I have seen more people succeed than not succeed in okay. going back to the head of bed. However, I would never be able to do this unless I was firmly grounded in recovery. So, um, and I didn't have the support of, at the time, my counselor. So when I left my treatment center that you know, that day in February, two weeks after the intervention, I said, I'm never going back to anesthesia and I am never going back to that hospital. And my counselor said, well, one day at a time, why don't you see what happens? And my road got very narrow for what was good for me. So I can speak for me. I know that my recovery is the most important thing in my life. I will always put my recovery before my job and I will, um, I know the, the warning signs for, uh, you know, uh, impending relapse and I have people who support me and I can talk that I can talk to about that. And I don't trust myself. I don't trust my future self, uh, in that way. So, so I can really only speak for myself and know that this is my path and this is a God given path for me. And when people ask if they should go back to anesthesia, I say, well, you know, that's going to be up to you. I mean, I gave anesthesia for four years before I became a drug addict. So I have a history of giving anesthesia without diverting drugs. Um, and I know that a lot of the literature says if you're a resident or a student um, and you have a problem and um, you know maybe this isn't the right career for you because you're early enough and um, it's early enough in your life and your training that you can change places. It's easier for a resident, I think, than a nurse anesthesia student because anesthesia for, for um, advanced nursing is so specific. I can't just go do some other kind of advanced nursing. I need a whole other degree. Whereas, you know, sure. a resident is already a, but they can go get another residency. But 
but I can't speak for other people. I can say that it is possible if somebody is grounded in recovery and that's, that is the most important thing. And I can't work at every single hospital. I can't work in all the settings that are available. I need to be in a place where they're comfortable having me, that they're keeping an eye on me and where I work right now, they test the waste. It's the best system possible um, at the Mayo Clinic that, you know, we test the waste. They're very strict um, on monitoring uh, our usage, um, and, uh, so, you know, it's, it's really hard for me to say, but I, I, I can tell you it's possible, uh, yeah. to, to, to recover and to, and to work. And, you know, I'm a really good resource to have because if there's a problem, you know, come find me, I'll tell you whether I think that these are signs of, um, something. And also I can say, I can sit in the room with that provider and say, Hey, look, I've been where you are. Um, this is how I got help and I'm back giving anesthesia. So I can offer, and I've been involved in those situations where I've had to sit with another CRNA and a supervisor and do an intervention. And, right. um, you know, I think that that's a gift that I can give to the place where I work. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, you've touched on several things. I, you know, I guess it's one of the big things is knowing your limits and being honest with yourself. Um, only the self can know whether you're being honest, right? So somebody could be saying, nope, I'm ready, I'm grounded, I'm in my recovery, but you know, they know they're not quite there um, and there's nothing we can do about that, right? So you really do have to be very, very honest with yourself. Um, maybe in the future you could get back, but right now you're just truly not ready. You've got more healing to do. So people need to be honest with themselves. But I think you've also touched on something which is important and it's a message that I'm trying to get out there too. And that is that culture of, we accept you, we'll work with you because what that does for the facility is it, once that word is out, then others know that. And if someone else has a problem, they could come to you in confidence and, hey, you know, what do I do? Or like you said, you're involved in those um, interview interactions with suspicious diversion cases and you can share your story and give them some hope, which is extremely important for those um, confrontations with people. So I think those are all fantastic things. Yes. What, what do you think is a good approach to bringing somebody back to work? I mean, how do you combine the monitoring without reminding them on a daily basis what their past was? Or is it good to remind them on a daily basis because that helps keep them, you know, potentially more on the straight and narrow? What, what kind of reintegration process do you think works best? Um. Well, first, I don't need a reminder from anyone that I'm in recovery. I start out my day every day with the gratitude for being alive and sober. Um, okay. and, and I was very blessed. So I did actually go back to, my, to the hospital where I had diverted from three years after, um, uh, three years sober. I went, I went back to work there okay. three and a half years. And, um, and they were very amazing they so i was under contract with the board of nursing and so my job could say okay well we know that the board of nursing is monitoring you they're i'm getting urine drug screens which i think are extremely important um they said gee it's not a good idea for you to work overtime uh don't take call um don't work overtime let's just start you out at 40 hours a week 
um, regular shifts, like not night shift or anything like that. Um, uh, so my job could say, okay, well, we know that the board of nursing has you covered. We're just going to keep an eye on you like we would any other employee. We'll do monthly reports. Um, your counselor will check in with us. We'll check in with your counselor. Uh, they had each other's phone numbers. They could check in. Um, so it was very friendly. I had people who knew my story who would also keep an eye on me. And, you know, the board of nursing asked me before they granted me my license back, you know, I had lost everything and I had to gain it back. But they, um, they said, well, how will we know? How will you, how will your coworkers know if you relapse? I said, they're going to know in a minute because that's the way this disease is. I just knew that if I relapsed, I would live a day. And um, so I had people keep keeping an eye on me. So like a recovery friendly workplace is really important. It's important for there to be non-judgmental people say, Hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, um, gee, I noticed that you called in sick last week. You know, is everything okay? Did you go to a meeting? Are you going to meetings? Um, you know, that kind of thing, somebody who kind of understands, um, and then to have, you know, judgment free work zone, and, you know, maybe people did judge me when I came back, but when I did come back, I got a lot of hugs from people and they said, we're so happy you're back. We're so glad that you're okay. We thought you had bulimia. We thought you had cancer. We thought, you know, a million things They're, They were just, you know, welcome me with open arms, uh, telling me that. And, and here's the other crazy thing. The hospital said they were sorry. They're like, Hey, we're really sorry about what we did and we've changed everything. And again, yeah. so their drug screens, the monitoring from a, another person, and then also having a pharmacy department that, um, that is better at testing the waste and um, keeping more of an eye on things. And they had changed all that. So, um, you know, all of those things, it's like you bake a cake, you put flour, sugar, eggs, butter, if you leave the butter, it's not going to taste so good. So kind of like, I feel like a return to work is a lot of different things to make it uh, really good. Right. And, and an open, like you said, people checking on you. It's not something we're just going to not talk about because that's, right. you know, embarrassing for you, but we're going to throw it out there. Like, Hey, you called in sick, you know, what's up, yeah. you know, how yes. are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Interesting. You mentioned that you do education for the new grads. And one yes. of the messages was, you know, developed that develop that group um, that is watching you. Are there any other messages that you want to make sure that they get out of their time with you? Um, basically, that help is available. Uh, you know, if if it comes to that point where you find yourself, you know, down a road that you didn't really plan on going, that um, you know, help is available and hope is possible and uh, I advertised a lot for the, the ANA has a helpline. So the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists realizes that an occupational hazard is substance use disorder. And um, we have a 1-800 helpline that's manned by our friend, Rigo Garcia. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and he uh, he's a good friend of mine. And um, he they monitor, they take those phone calls and they just they help people get an evaluation for getting help. So that's one of the things I, I tell the students. I even tell the, the anesthesia residents, the doctors, like, yeah, this is a CRNA helpline, but you can call it too. And if you're an x-ray tech or you have a family member, you can call that number too. And um, it's confidential. And that's the thing that's very important about that moment of like clarity where you might want to get help and you're not sure. And 
I remember that, like, I wanted to protect my anonymity so much. Now it's less important to me, but that anonymity, that confidentiality, it's like, it feels so important at the time. Um, and like, I want to get my job back. I don't want to be reported. I don't want to go to jail. I have a family. I have all this, like, yes, we, it's all possible. And it sucks at the moment, but it's possible. And, um, and I also just teach them, keep an eye on your brothers and sisters, like keep an eye on your tribe. If you notice, like, you know, there's a lamb outside the, right, we, that, that's a big analogy, you know, the, the sheep and the, you know, there's a sheep or a lamb heading for the, for the cliff. It's like, go get that person, bring them back, mm -hmm. and you'll feel better about yourself if you take care of people. Um, you know, we're nurses, we like to take care of people, even doctors, we all like to take care of people, we want people to do well. And so keep an eye on your brothers and sisters, uh, stay well. You know, if you're feeling like your life is a little bit out of control and you're a little over your skis, uh, because of family, uh, whatever, working too hard, you know, take a break. It's really okay to take a break, take a step back before it gets to that point of your life being out of control and you're in so much pain um, that, uh, that, that you can't, that your only, your only solution is to, you know, find a drug. Right. Yeah. All good points. I, I do know that procedural areas and the OR, the staff are very much a team and very dedicated to each other, so much so that an outsider coming in to observe or potentially to do an audit on something and workflows, they don't like it. It's like, right. what are you doing? I mean, they can be a little bit hostile, right? Because it's yes, like, yes. we don't need you. We got this. This is our place. But I think adding on to that is the message that substance use disorders are there and diversion is real and that's fine look after each other that's fantastic but you have to also know when to speak up and when to do something you're not protecting your colleague by not saying anything right it's yes. that that team thing needs to take a different look when there is a concern continue to be a team but know that you need to speak up and say something for yes, sure. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> having that conversation and and not having it be like in the old days, we used to say cancer. You know, we used to have to whisper cancer. And and I really hope that someday we don't have to whisper, you know, drug addiction or diversion or any of those things. That it is a it's a reality and it's ugly. And you know, if 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 you know if you see something, do something. You know, uh, that's also one of our mottos at the AANA. Um, it's it's not it will reveal itself eventually and what we don't want is for somebody to be found in the bathroom overdosed or, or dead exactly exactly yeah and i think another takeaway from this conversation for me is for facilities in addition to whatever they're doing which you know hopefully they're monitoring and, and doing all these things as you said you know you were enabled to some extent mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um <clears throat> putting out the resource information for if somebody has that moment of okay you know i'm this is it i gotta do something so those places where they can go and still keep their anonymity and report themselves and talk to somebody and at that moment if i'm guessing at that moment if you have a moment of clarity of i need help but you don't know where to go that moment could pass pretty quickly and yes. maybe not come for a long time. But if that number is front and center and quickly available to you, then you know you yeah. might take advantage of it in that moment that you have that clarity. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely, 100%. And you know, to have somebody on the other line who says, 
yeah, I've been where you have, and I'm human. And, you know, it's unfortunate that this is how my life has turned out. I, I didn't choose necessarily. I never said when I wanted to become a nurse anesthetist that I wanted to become a drug addict. I yeah. never said that. I never believed it. Not in a million years. I, I probably would have bet millions of dollars to the opposite. And, um, you know, for that. So, yeah, I do appreciate you bringing the human side to a lot of the, these stories. Yeah, well, I think it's important, definitely, and it helps us. Is there anything that you think can be said by those who haven't been there in a confrontation of somebody, of essentially a stranger, or if the manager is in the room that has some relationship with them? And I'm sure it's different for each person depending on where they are in their denial or, you know, the, the process, but is there any particular message you think that should be incorporated into every confrontation with somebody that we suspect that something is going on and you know we're not friends family that type of thing we're just we're doing our job we've spotted something and we're confronting i think the i hated myself so much at that moment of uh, my intervention and you know even somebody telling me they loved me was so painful and I didn't believe it because I had been hijacked. But somebody did say to me, you're worth it. This is worth it. You are a worthy human being and you're worth getting the help and that help is possible and help is available. I think those are the key things okay. um, in, in talking to somebody that getting help is worth it. And um, my best friend who was eight and a half months pregnant in the intervention said to me, I don't care if you never talk to me again. I don't care if you hate me for the rest of my, of, of your life and my life, but you are going to get help today. And um, that was really powerful that she was willing to put that on the line. So um, I think even a stranger or an employer or a supervisor, if they're willing to put something out there on the line, whether it's take care of the flight to get to treatment or give them the time off or say, we're going to keep your benefits for you. Um, because that, you know, financial worries are enormous and it's so tied up. Our, our addiction is so tied up in our, in our disease. So, um, but, but really, and truly you're worth it. You are 100% worth getting help. Okay. I like that. All right. Thank you for these excellent takeaways, Bridget. And thank you for being willing to come and share your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for taking the time to search me out. And um, yeah, have a really happy new year, by the way. Yes, thank you. You too. All right. You have a great rest of your day. Thank you.